Hello, this is Gary Pasigio, Head of Fixed Income for CIBC Private Wealth Management with an update on the municipal bond market. We're coming up on two months since the first declarations of emergency and stay-at-home orders were issued by states, and we're starting to see releases of national and state-level data that help to put the depth of the economic fallout into perspective. Reports on first quarter GDP and March retail sales were both sharply negative at down 4.8% and down 8.4% respectively, and both only captured just a portion of the economic shutdown to date. While this data is enough to convince us that the U.S. has entered a deep recession in March, uh, more recent and frequent measures like first-time claims for unemployment reveal much more substantial damage in labor markets and, by extension, future levels of personal income and consumer confidence. Over 30 million first-time claims for unemployment benefits have been filed since mid-March, representing roughly 18% of the U.S. labor force. The economic strain of this macro-level data has had an immediate impact on state and local government finances. The expense side, there are direct costs of dealing with a public health emergency, obviously. Uh, the massive increase in claims for unemployment insurance is expected to, de to deplete state insurance trust funds, which could lead states to borrow from federal programs, creating interest expenses over time. Many of those filing for unemployment will qualify for Medicaid, leading to higher expenses for the state as well. The revenue losses are already hitting states, and they're expected to be much greater than the increase in expenses. Income tax receipts, both corporate and individual, and sales taxes are expected to see the sharpest declines, given their high correlations with unemployment and retail sales activity, which, as I noted earlier, is under pressure. States are just beginning to report sales tax receipts for April, and collections are down in the 8 to 10% area from prior year's data. Taken together with property taxes, where we expect greater stability, our base case for total budget impact on the state and local governments is a 10 to 15% deficit. In dollar terms, we would be talking about something in the neighborhood of 200 to $300 billion. At this point, it's important to remember that state and local governments are required to run balanced budgets and do not have the flexibility of financing a deficit with debt, as we see increasingly at the federal level. So, in the event that deficits are created by an economic contraction such as this one, the balanced budget restriction makes the overall contraction more challenging. Normally, states would employ one or several budget balancing strategies to eliminate a deficit. They could dip into rainy day funds. This is an option for most. Uh, the median rainy day fund was close to 8% of expenses prior to COVID-19 hitting, which is not enough to cover our base case for the median state and would be far below what's needed uh, for states that are at the very low end of the group of, uh, of, of savings. Another strategy they could use is to employ one-time cash flow savings gimmicks like extending payables. This is generally bad policy, but it's an easy thing to do. And then, of course, states could also cut expenses or raise revenues, but cutting payrolls or increasing the tax burden on your constituents is where policy becomes contractionary and runs counter to the objectives 
of the federal government's approach to dealing with the virus. This is where fiscal and monetary policy is attempting to step in to fill the breach. To date, and on the surface, the amounts of grants and lending facilities made available has been significant. The Fed on April 9th spelled out details of a $500 billion facility for state and local governments to act as a source of bridge loans to deal with any near to intermediate term cash flow issues. The Fed will buy term debt up to three years backed by expected revenues from investment grade rated state and local borrowers in the event that they cannot access public markets. On the fiscal front, four versions of economic stimulus packages, including the CARES Act, count for nearly $400 billion in available grants dispersed across state and local governments, not-for-profit hospitals, airports, transit authorities, K-12 schools, and higher education. While substantial, this money comes with two restrictions for states. First, limited flexibility, meaning it can only be used to address direct COVID-19 expenses and cannot be used for the revenue shortfalls I noted earlier. Secondly, CARES money has a limited shelf life in that it expires at the end of 2020. Taken together, these policy actions make nearly $900 billion available to address near-term direct costs of confronting the virus and intermediate cash flow needs that arise from delayed tax payments and limited market access. But it does not address lost revenues of an economic shutdown or the risks of a second wave outbreaks or lingering consumer reluctance to return to pre-virus behaviors or consumer spending patterns as they change over time. Currently under negotiation is yet another round of fiscal stimulus that is expected to address some of these issues. Now, both sides of the aisle in Congress have been forced into the highly unusual and perhaps uncomfortable position of having to agree on things in order to pass much of the COVID-related legislation. As the cumulative amount of stimulus grows and we start to see signs of flattening case curves, Congress has started to revert back to a more familiar adversarial stance. We expect there will be a sizable stimulus package, but the negotiations should get tougher, as indicated by Senate Majority Leader McConnell's comment that states should seek bankruptcy rather than bailouts. McConnell later walked back his comments, and we don't see bankruptcy as either likely or feasible. So what does all of this mean for municipal bonds as an investment? We still see muni bonds as an area of stability and safety. Some areas will suffer credit rating downgrades. Um, in particular, weaker credits heading into the recession will have limited flexibility to deal with pressure on revenues. And some previous areas of strength will face new challenges. Essential transportation revenue-backed bonds are dealing with sharp reductions in fares and tolls with little visibility on how quickly consumers will return to prior levels of usage. The areas where we expect continued strength are areas that we've always emphasized, including things like essential water and utility-backed revenue bonds, um, areas like local general obligations backed by strong, stable sources of property tax flows, and all bond categories where the underlying structure provides support. Even categories that have been on the front line of the virus, like airports, hospitals, and some transit authorities, they maintain strong bondholder protections, like liquidity reserves of one to three years in some cases, and debt service payment priority, and debt service reserves, importantly. 
With that, I want to thank you for listening and please reach out to your relationship manager or contact at CIBC if you should have any questions. Thank you. For more on this and other topics, subscribe to this podcast and visit wealth.us.cibc.com. CIBC Private Wealth Management includes CIBC National Trust Company, CIBC Delaware Trust Company, and CIBC Private Wealth Advisors Incorporated, all of which are wholly owned subsidiaries of CIBC Private Wealth Group, LLC, and the Private Wealth Division of CIBC Bank USA. All of these entities are wholly owned subsidiaries of Canadian Imperial Bank of Commerce. This podcast is intended for informational purposes only, and the material presented should not be construed as an offer or recommendation to buy or sell any security. Contents expressed are current as of the date of this publication and may change without notice.